Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International. I'm glad you've joined me as we begin our study of the fourth of the seven appointments with God, the Feast of Pentecost. As we study these feasts, we always have to keep in mind the definition of a biblical feast. A feast of the Lord is an appointment set by God to meet with His people Israel at a specific time in history. Recall that the seven feasts or appointments of the Lord each served three purposes of God. Their first purpose was to remember seven mountaintop experiences of the nation of Israel. Their second purpose was to picture seven steps in man's spiritual journey of life, doctrines if you will. And their third purpose was to serve as seven signposts on the road of history or of time. Now, the first three feasts of Leviticus 23 each tied in a specific historical event in the history of the nation of Israel. The first feast was Passover. The historical event was the Exodus, picturing beautifully deliverance physically and spiritually. The second feast was unleavened bread, which pictured sanctification, showing the setting apart physically and spiritually. The third feast, First Fruits, pictured resurrection, the new life in the promised land for Israel, and new spiritual life for all those who truly know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, with these first three feasts or appointments, they're completed in history. Jesus Christ had accomplished the purpose of his first coming as Messiah. For in Matthew 1, verse 21, we read that first coming purpose. It began speaking of Mary, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That was the purpose of his first coming, to save his people from their sins. Thus, this fourth feast, the Feast of Pentecost, will link that first coming with his second coming in the future. Now, Scripture associates Pentecost with a number of significant events in history. The first, it associates the Exodus with the accompanying wilderness experience. It also associates the founding of the Mosaic Covenant given at Mount Sinai. And thirdly, it associates the second seasonal harvest crop for Israel, the wheat harvest. Now, in order to understand the spiritual significance of the Feast of Pentecost, we must again first examine the historical events that are really connected, closely connected, to this feast. As we look at the historical initiation that prepared or led the way for Pentecost, we begin with that first month 
of travel when Israel left Egypt. The people of Israel left the land of Goshen on the 15th day of the first month, according to Numbers 33, verse 3. After crossing the Red Sea, they made stops in Mara, Alim, Dafka, Alush, and finally Rephidim. Now, precisely one month after the start of the Exodus, on the 15th day of the second month, they arrived at the wilderness of Sin in Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. And from there they will travel on to meet with God for their next appointment. That appointment is in the third month. For then Israel reached Mount Sinai and kept its second divine meaning with its Redeemer, the Lord. You see, as Israel camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the instructions for the covenant that would eventually be known as the Mosaic Covenant, recorded in Exodus 19. The Mosaic Covenant is truly Israel's national constitution. It contains three important promises given to Israel by God. First, Israel would be God's chosen people among all the nations of the world. Second, Israel would be a kingdom of priests to God. Third, Israel was to be a holy nation. Now, unlike the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant indicated that the nation's actions would determine God's response to them. If the nation obeyed the Lord, he'd bless them. If they disobeyed him, chastisement would follow from the Lord. Note that the covenant relationship depended on the nation's actions rather than those of a single individual. Now, individuals might break the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant without hurting the nation as a whole. Now, on a certain few occasions, individuals' actions really did hurt the nation because their action went well beyond their immediate personal life but affected the entire nation. Israel's physical presence in the land, along with its observance of the feasts, would indicate whether God would bless them or not bless them. If God had to withdraw his blessings and bring chastisement, it usually would mean dispersion or exile with the accompanying terminations of the feasts. And when these feasts could not be observed because they weren't in the land, it would be a clear indication, according to Leviticus 26, that they were under the chastisement of God. They were under that part of the Mosaic Covenant that said, when you disobeyed the Lord, chastisement followed. You see, God would tangibly show his displeasure through a, this mode of chastisement. Lamentations 2.6 and he, now that's God, hath violently taken away his tabernacle as if it were of a garden. He hath destroyed his places of assembly. The Lord hath caused the solemn feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. Now, back at Mount Sinai, when Moses presented the basic terms of the Constitution, the covenant, at Mount Sinai, the people gave their unqualified acceptance of the covenant. Uh, 
in verse 8 of chapter 19. Following this verbal affirmation came a process of preparing, reviewing, accepting, and ratifying the covenant. In the middle of this critical time in Israel's national history, God came, according to the scriptures, down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Now we're in verse 11. And we read on. In the morning there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceedingly loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Now, at the end of these days of instruction, and we have to say terror and awe, the nation formally accepted the covenant that was ratified with blood. Thus, in the third month, Israel officially became a nation governed by constitutional law, the law coming from God himself. Now that Israel officially became a nation governed by constitutional law, they had to formally ratify that constitution. It's interesting that a great deal of scholarly debate centers upon determining the actual day on which the nation did ratify its constitution or covenant. As we examine this, we'll better understand why there is the concern for the day. Now, let's go back. On the first day of the third month, the day that the Hebrews reached Mount Sinai, Moses ascended the mountain and briefly met with God. In Exodus 19, verses 3 through 7, we read how he then returned to the people. He reminded them that their God controls all events. Quoting God, he says, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. That's God's words in verse 4. In verse 8, it's recorded that Israel verbally accepted God's three promises and the conditions required for the fulfillment of those three promises. Having received the nation's promise, Moses returns to the mountain. He meets with the Lord for further instructions. The Lord then tells the people to consecrate, to sanctify themselves for two days in preparation to meet with him. So, summarizing here, on day number one of the third month, there was discussions, verbal acceptance, instructions, and it would be their first day of cleansing. Day two continued the cleansing and this preparation process to meet with God. Day 3 in verse 11, Israel met its God and heard the preamble of the covenant or the constitution. And that preamble is actually the Ten Commandments given in Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 through 17. Now Moses also received additional instructions about the future law. The people then verbally accepted the preamble in verse 3 of chapter 24 and this is their second verbal acceptance of the covenant. From this point on, the chronology of the succeeding events became a bit more complicated. 
requiring a very careful analysis of Exodus chapters 19 through 24. Now, I'm going to present the simplest chronology that accounts for the events and harmonizes with the scriptures. So on day one, we have the first acceptance by the people of this new constitution. Moses then returns to God, and this is the first day of preparation. The second day of preparation is also recorded in Exodus 19, verse 10. On the third day, this will be the second acceptance by the people of the Constitution. Moses reads them the preamble, and Moses again meets with God. That's verses 16 and 17. Now the fourth day, we move over to chapter 24. We see that Moses writes the words of the Lord. The fifth day, very important, is the third acceptance by the people of the Constitution or Covenant. The Covenant is then formally ratified and it's sealed with shed blood. This is Exodus chapter 24, uh, focusing in verses 7 and 8. Thus, there were five eventful days before Moses actually departs for his 40 days upon the mountain with God. Since this five-day period commenced on the first of the month, we can safely conclude that the blood ratification occurred on the fifth day of the third month. Now, in order to see the linkage to the fourth feast, Pentecost, we need to read God's instructions for this feast. In Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 15, and we'll read through to verse 22. And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall ye number fifty days. And you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, and one young bullock and two rams. They shall be for a burnt offering unto the Lord with their meat offering and their drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of sweet savor unto the Lord. Then ye shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. Now they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall proclaim on the selfsame day that may be a holy convocation unto you. Ye shall do no servile work therein. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest. Neither shalt thou gather any gleanings of thy harvest." Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. 
I am the Lord your God. Thus were given the instructions for this fourth feast of the Lord, the Feast of Pentecost. You see, the number of days that separate this feast from the Feast of Firstfruits, the feast was now named Pentecost from the Greek, which means the 50th. Since the fifth day of the third month comes exactly 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, we can also conclude that day five, the day of ratification, coincided with the Feast of Pentecost. Historically, this now linked Pentecost to the first three feasts, for all four are mountaintop events in this very young nation's history. But this feast is also linked to Israel's harvest. For like the Feast of First Fruits, this feast also requires the gift of first fruits. In Leviticus 23, verse 17, it said, Ye shall bring out of your habitation two wave loaves of two-tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. Notice, they are the first fruits unto the Lord. Recall that Israel's first harvest began in the first month at the Feast of First Fruits. That first fruit or crop harvested was barley, but now we're at the second crop, which is also a first fruit, and it is the harvest of the wheat. This second harvest officially begins on the fifth day of the third month. The Israelites were to consider the time of this new meat offering, or new grain offering as it's translated in other versions, as the time of the fullest harvest. Pentecost, as appointed by God, marks the juncture between these two principal crops of barley and wheat. So there's two first fruits because these are two separate harvests. Both are crucial to the nation of Israel. And Pentecost is the demarcation point between the two harvests. As of Pentecost, the barley harvest is over. Anything left in the field is left in the field because now they start harvesting the wheat. In Leviticus chapter 23 and verses 15 to 22, it proclaimed the beginning of the second harvest by stating that it should occur precisely seven Sabbaths after the start of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, precisely 50 days after that feast. Now, biblically, seven Sabbaths suggest to us the idea of completion, the completion of a set period of time, or in this case, a specific harvest. Since this feast marks the end of the first harvest, it appears that the number seven does have a symbolic association with this feast, in addition to its literal chronological sense. Additionally now, the instructions for this feast again prohibit servile work. Recall, this command conveys the idea of ceasing or the cessation of a specific activity. In other words, this is the end of the barley harvest.
Further, Jewish tradition now designates this feast as the Hag, remember that's the word for feast, Ha-Azareth, or simply Azareth, meaning the feast of conclusion, or just conclusion. Leviticus 23 and verse 17 indicates that the people of Israel should treat their new crop as a first fruit unto the Lord, just as they treated the barley crop back at the Feast of First Fruits. So in a sense, you could say we have two Feasts of First Fruit. The first one, back in the first month. The second one, in the third month. And we now call it Pentecost because of the 50 days. Now, just as in our First Fruits Feast of the first month, so too in this, the crop is brought in from the field, given to the priests, and as a result, a loaf of bread is made. But more correctly, in this feast, it's two loaves of bread. For in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you'll recall, the people offered a single loaf of bread, and it was of unleavened bread. But on Pentecost, they offer two loaves, and notice carefully, of leavened bread. This difference reinforces our earlier conclusion that yeast in and of itself is not evil. Leaven's pervasive action is the key significance of leaven. Obviously, the Lord wouldn't command them to make bread with leaven if it was to symbolize evil and sin. Instead, it's to remind them of the pervasive action. As, just as leaven moves through the bread, so will sin move through God's people. For this reason, the fact that God has used a new crop with loaves of bread and with leaven, we conclude that this scripture intentionally links wheat and leaven for some spiritual or doctrinal teaching. Thus, we have in Exodus 12, 15, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and here Leviticus 23, the Feast of Pentecost, one having one loaf, the other having two loaves, one without leaven, one with two of them with leaven. Now, Numbers 28, verse 26, creates a, a bit of confusion initially by referring to Pentecost as the Feast of First Fruits. For in that verse we read, Also in the day of the first fruits, when you bring a new meat offering unto the Lord, after your weeks be out, you shall have a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work. This passage in Numbers 28 verse 26, it's not referring to the Feast of First Fruits that occurs during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Instead, by using this title, Numbers emphasizes the fact that Pentecost marks the beginning of the second major harvest in the land, that harvest of wheat. Because the scriptures call Pentecost a Feast of First Fruits, we can expect to see symbolism similar to that used in the Feast of First Fruits. As with the earlier feast, 
the scriptures stress the importance of observing this feast properly. Now, these requirements are, there is to be no laborious work to be performed during the feast. All the men of Israel are to gather in Jerusalem. This is again a pilgrimage feast. Furthermore, God specifies it is to be a perpetual feast. Significantly, the scriptures extend this feast by uniquely allowing Gentiles to participate in its observance. This quality differs sharply from Passover in which the scriptures specifically exclude Gentiles in Exodus chapter 12 verse 48. Now, in this feast of Pentecost, the law of gleanings explained in verse 22 of Leviticus 23 sets the conditions for Gentile involvement. It was this regulation that helped Ruth, a Gentile Moabitess, to survive when she returned with Naomi to Bethlehem. In modern times, Jewish people read the book of Ruth publicly when they observe the feast of Pentecost. Their action seems appropriate since most of the book of Ruth takes place in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem's name literally means the house of bread. This historical connection also serves to remind the Jewish people that even a Gentile can come to know and love the God of Naomi. We see in this connection with Ruth and the Feast of Pentecost a, a, a true hint of what the total meaning of Pentecost was as God intended it. Thus, we're going to look at now the doctrinal meaning of the Feast of Pentecost. Like the earlier feasts, we find that God first directs Pentecost's purposes toward the nation of Israel. Its later significance, however, will reach out to all mankind. Pentecost paradoxically functions as both a joining link and a separating force between Israel and the church. Remember, we define the church as all true believers in Jesus Christ who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior beginning in Acts chapter 2 and carrying on until the Lord comes to take the church from this earth to be with him. Of all the feasts, this is the only one that both Jewish people and Gentile Christians observe. Alfred Edersheim, and I'd urge you to read his writings. They're fascinating. His research has been extensive about the temple, about Judaism, about the days of our Lord when he walked on this earth. Excellent cultural references that you need to know. Alfred Edersheim points out a unique feature of this feast that symbolizes this linkage between the nation of Israel and the church. He says, and I quote, but what gave to the feast its distinctive peculiarity was the presentation of two loaves, end quote. You see, for the modern Christian, we typically limit Pentecost's function 
history, and purpose to the start of the church. We make it very centered about the church. The modern Jewish person who does understand Pentecost says that Pentecost marks the boundary between two harvests. And a few might also add that Pentecost marks the giving of the law. The question we must ask is, what is the true meaning of this feast? Well, if we go to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to begin reading verse 12 and we'll read through verse 16. This will help us to see the true purpose of the Feast of Pentecost as God instituted it and has had it observed and occurred on Acts chapter 2, and we still keep track of it and note it each year. Ephesians 2, verse 12. That at that time ye were without Christ. Who's the ye? That's the Gentiles, the Ephesian Gentiles. He goes on. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, by the blood of the Messiah. For he, the Messiah, is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity hereby. That's Ephesians 2, verses 12 through 16. We need to notice several things. Back in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1 it said, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come. This really suggests the fulfillment of the prophecy in God's prophetic calendar, which he gave us in Leviticus 23. Remember, I keep saying the feasts are prophetically significant. You must understand the feast to get a full grasp of many passages in the New Testament and especially in Acts chapter 2. Now, although most theologians see Pentecost solely as the beginning of the church, we must never forget that God established the feasts as a critical part of the Mosaic covenant, that constitution of Israel. And that covenant was between God himself and his nation of Israel. Therefore, any definition of our doctrine derived from Pentecost therefore must first consider the nation of Israel's role in this feast. The doctrine pictured by Pentecost, applicable to all believers, consists of three fundamental elements. The first fundamental element of Pentecost is that Pentecost symbolizes the uniting of Jewish and Gentile believers into one people of God's own choosing. The command of the pilgrimage feasts that all Jewish males must return to Jerusalem really pictures this joining. 
For the Pentecost recorded in Acts 2 notes this when it says, There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, notice carefully, out of every nation under heaven. You see, God started the church from this devout groups of Jewish people out of every nation who had come to Jerusalem to observe the pilgrimage feast. Notice that the men present were Jewish, but it also included Gentile proselytes and God-fearing Gentiles. What we have here is that this group acted as a symbol of the universal need of mankind for the gospel and of the church's consequent responsibility for that mission to proclaim the gospel. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ or the Messiah, for it is the power of God unto salvation, notice, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Remember, Pentecost included the Jews, but allowed in the Gentiles. The harvest that takes place at the time of Pentecost pictures this reconciliation of Jewish and Gentile peoples into one united group of believers. Like the completed barley harvest, which is past, God temporarily completed his dealings with the nation of Israel on the Pentecost of Acts chapter 2. But reminds us quickly through Paul where he says, I say then, have they, that's Israel, stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. May it never be is what it says in the Greek. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them, Israel, to jealousy. That's Romans 11, verse 11. Further, Paul tells us that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. That's in verse 25 of Romans 11. With the completion of the barley harvest focused on Israel, the nation, a second harvest, wheat, begins. Thus, the wheat harvest symbolizes the church age. Now, Pentecost is not a distinct line of demarcation between Israel and the church, between Jew and Gentile. Rather, it reflects the beginning of a gradual shift in God's dealings with mankind that includes a shift of God from his dealings with a nation to now a group of people from many nations. I stress this. It's not true to say that God once worked through the Jews and now works through the Gentiles. A truer interpretation would say that God worked through a specific nation Israel, in the Old Testament. But now God works through individuals, regardless of their nationality, their genetic lines. In the New Testament, he is now working through individuals into a group, a body called the church. Interestingly, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts as two volumes of history, Luke does not use the term church, ecclesia, 
in the second chapter of Acts. It's not there. Alvin McLean, a, a great theologian that I deeply respected his writings, uh, he pointed out that this omission of the word church doesn't indicate the absence of the church, but rather it suggests that the church did not yet occupy the center of the stage. In other words, if we're picking, picturing a stage at Acts chapter 2, Israel's at the forefront and Peter's speaking to Israel. But off to the sort of the back of the stage, just starting to appear, is the church age. In other words, while the church does occupy a part of God's plan and purpose, it's not, I repeat this, it is not the one and only part of God's plan and purpose. The church does not replace Israel. Israel is not abandoned by God. The church merely has a different function and purpose in God's plan for his people. Therefore, a unified interpretation strikes a balance between the ending of the Old Testament nation of Israel, symbolized by the barley harvest, and the beginning of a combined Jewish and Gentile harvest called the church, now symbolized by the wheat harvest. The symbolism of the leaven in the two Pentecost loaves further supports this fusion of two coming together, Jewish and Gentile believers. At this point, I would warn of a danger. Peter periodically struggled with the idea of Gentiles being included in God's plan for his kingdom. Oh, Peter could allow a few proselytes. But he struggled with the Gentiles having a significant role in God's plan for his kingdom. You can see that in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 15 and 16. The book of Acts contains much on this subject, showing us that many besides Peter struggled with this difficult idea. As both the book of Acts and church history records, the days of God's working with the nation of Israel had come to an intermission in history. Just as the barley harvested ended at Pentecost and the wheat began, so too a harvest of national Jewish souls gave way to a predominantly Gentile harvest. The two loaves picture a church composed of both Jewish and Gentile believers, both purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Recall also that when the scripture says stranger or the sojourner, with its regulations in Pentecost, that was to allow Gentiles to participate in this feast. Thus, notice, foreshadowing the coming mystery of the church. This is one of the unique, uh, perhaps a little tiny hints of a coming church age in a body called the church. The book of Ruth graphically demonstrates this principle in action. Now, the second fundamental element of the Feast of Pentecost is really the sequence of doctrinal truths. Dwight Pentecost continues to note that this is God's formal offer of the Messiah and the kingdom at this point, at Pentecost of Acts chapter 2. 
Before our Lord ascended, he told his apostles and disciples to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. During this interval of testing, they were to wait and take no action. At the conclusion of these 10 days, which occurred 50 days after the resurrection and the Feast of First Fruits, 50 days after the resurrection, we have on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descending and gave to those gathered the ability to speak in all the languages of the ancient world. Now, when the astonished multitude consisting of Jews and Gentile proselytes, devout men out of every nation under heaven, Acts 2 verse 5, when they heard the disciples and followers of Christ speaking in many different languages, they naturally asked, What meaneth this? Verse 12. In response, Peter preached a sermon. The key to his sermon, as well as the explanation of the second doctrinal element, appears in Peter's opening words. In verse 14, he says, Ye men of Judea. And then in verse 22, Ye men of Israel. Notice carefully, Peter addresses the nation of Israel, not the church. And he addresses the nation about the Messiah. In verse 36, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Messiah, or Christ. At the Feast of Pentecost, Peter proclaimed Jesus as the long-awaited, promised Messiah. The Messiah's coming fulfilled the promise of the Abrahamic covenant that stated that Abraham would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. We read in verse 37 of Acts 2 that a small group was pricked in their heart, responded, resulting in 3,000 newly saved souls. Now, while we may get excited about 3,000, and we should, if we look at the number of people in Israel at that feast of Pentecost, 3,000 is actually a small, small part of a percent. Now, at the end of Pentecost, the attendees would then return to their homes for a period of four months before they would have to come back to Jerusalem for the next pilgrimage feasts, which are actually going to be three feasts in the seventh month. So in Acts 2, all the people would spread and return to their homes. And for four months, they would stay at home working, carrying out the duties and serving God, those who truly knew him. And then in the seventh month, they would have to return to Jerusalem. Therefore, the events of Acts chapter 2 Pentecost served not only to honor God, but to also offer the theocratic kingdom to Israel. Now think about this. The first Pentecost at Mount Sinai, so far, far, far back, laid down the constitution for the nation of Israel and in it the groundwork for a coming kingdom. The second Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, God offers to Jesus Christ to the Jewish people as their king of that kingdom. 
Out of the tens of thousands present, only 3,000 responded. Therefore, it was not the nation responding to God and his offer of kingdom. It was those who truly sought the Lord. As the book of Acts will record, as you read it from beginning to end, after many rejections, God postpones the offering of the kingdom to Israel until a later date and fully opens the church to the Gentiles. And God delays carrying on the Mosaic Covenant. A quick comparison here of the first Pentecost and the second. The first Pentecost at Mount Horeb or Sinai in Exodus 19, it was the beginning of a spiritual harvest, a beginning of the nation of Israel. The participants were Hebrews that had been delivered at Passover three months earlier from Egypt. Now they were to become God's representative to the pagan world. That's the purpose of the nation of Israel, to proclaim God, the true God, and salvation through him. The ethnic composition of the nation of Israel was predominantly Jewish, with some small numbers of Gentiles as proselytes or God-fearing. At Pentecost of Acts chapter 2, they were in Jerusalem. The spiritual harvest that began was the body, the church, all church-age believers who would come. The participants in Acts 2 were Jewish and Gentile proselytes at that point. They were to become the church of true believers who were now to take up the task of proclaiming the true God and his salvation to the entire world. And again, just like really Pentecost at Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, so too at Acts 2 in Jerusalem, it was Jewish and Gentile. Now, rapidly, within 60 years, the church would be largely Gentile. But to this day, there are many, many, many Jewish believers who are part of the church age. The Pentecost of Acts chapter 2 marked not the end of a relationship between God and Israel and the Jewish people, no, but rather a interruption before the last appointment that will come centuries later. The four months of harvest that we have noted between Pentecost and the next Feast of the Lord those four months of harvest symbolize the period of silence between the nation of Israel and its God, just like the 400 years of silence between Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and the birth of the Lord in Bethlehem. While God is still speaking to Jewish individuals, God no longer sends prophets to Israel nor does he manifest himself in the temple through the Shekinah glory. In fact, after 70 AD, God removed the temple completely through the agency of the Romans. You see, since Israel failed to fulfill its part of the covenant and to be able to receive blessing, God temporarily ended the nation and scattered the Jewish people 
throughout the entire world. Mosaic Covenant, the Constitution for Israel, God had to turn from Israel when it rejected him, and he had to bring upon them chastisement and removal from the land. Now, the third crucial doctrinal element. Pentecost symbolizes the start of the worldwide church, a group of people spiritually separated from the world. Instead of dealing with one nation, God now deals with a united body of nationally diverse people. When God temporarily ended the nation of Israel, he allowed the church, the bride of Christ, to now be his representative to the world. In John chapter 15 and verse 19, Jesus Christ explains this representation. He says, If ye were of the world... The world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. The church, which the Lord builds through the work of the Holy Spirit, now testifies of him to the entire world. I suggest you read John 15, verses 26 to 27. So reviewing. Pentecost, through these three doctrinal elements, draws a line of demarcation in biblical history. The first four feasts of Israel contain both national Israel and universal mankind aspects. Remember, the first appointment, Passover, God redeemed a nation. The second appointment, unleavened bread, God sanctified his newly born nation. The third appointment, the Feast of First Fruits, God showed the first aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, the resurrection, to his people. The fourth appointment, Pentecost, God offered the promised one to the nation of Israel, an offer which, if accepted, would have brought in the theocratic kingdom. Instead, God delayed it while the church offered the Lord to the world. These first four appointments established a clear and significant pattern of God. So what about the future? By considering the calendar and the relationship of the seven feasts to each other, we note that a gap of four months intervenes between Pentecost and the next feast, the Feast of Trumpets. Now, many hold that these four months represent the period of time between the completed historical events of the first four feasts and the future events yet to come for the last three feasts. You see, I believe that. The last three feasts are prophecy and prophetic and teach great truths that all have to do with the latter days of history and with the coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. In Israel's history, the events of these first four feasts spanned a 40-year period. We call it sometimes the wilderness period. The same four feasts over the 40-day period between the Lord's resurrection and his ascension also provide application for all believers. I've shown that 
significant national events did in fact occur on those four feasts. As we turn to study the last three, there's some difficulties can arise. You see, the scriptures fail to mention definite historical events or universal applications connected with the final three feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. At this point in history, though, the last three feasts are incomplete from a historical standpoint for the nation of Israel and from a universal standpoint. Both the gap in time and the lack of national significance suggest a future element and application to these remaining feasts. And I stress a future application to the nation of Israel. If the first first four feasts applied to the nation of Israel, logic tells you that the last three are going to apply to the nation of Israel. And we're going to see that that is exactly how it works. The three pilgrimage feast groupings naturally suggest we should divide the feast into three groups. Since the first two clusters of feasts always applied to Israel, and since the pilgrimage feasts require all Jewish men to return to Jerusalem, we come to an inevitable conclusion that the final clusters of feast will also apply to the nation of Israel and, notice, will center upon Jerusalem with the people in the land and the nation existing. That's what began, I believe, in 1948. God started drawing the Jewish people back to the land, back to Jerusalem in 1967. Israel retook the city of Jerusalem. They are now in a position to once again begin observing the feasts. And I expect that those three feasts are coming, and perhaps soon. For just as surely as the autumn season comes and brings with it the third group of feasts, so too will God remember his unconditional promise to Abraham and the nation of Israel. You see, if God doesn't keep his promises to them, how do you know he's going to keep his promises to you? How do I know he will keep his promises to me? How do I know? I look at the nation of Israel. So too, with that third grouping of feasts, God will remember his unconditional promise to Abraham and his covenant to the nation of Israel. The tie between the Abrahamic covenant and prophecy leads many to seek fulfillment in the feasts. Dwight Pentecost says of this relationship, this Abrahamic covenant has a most important bearing on the doctrines of eschatology. That's the study of end times. The eternal aspects of this covenant, which guarantee Israel a permanent national existence, perpetual title to the land of promise, and the certainty of material and spiritual blessings through Christ, and guarantee Gentile nations a share in these blessings, determines the whole eschatological program of the Word of God. I hope you get excited as I do. Prophecy excites me, but it's supposed to excite us. We're not supposed to be afraid of it, fear it, 
No, God wants us to understand. He's given seven feasts to picture the steps in his plan for history for us to know. So please join me in our next presentation in which we're going to examine the Feast of Trumpets called by many the Mysterious Feast. And we'll see that no, it's not a mystery. We merely have to study the scriptures. Our greatest God is great. And these feasts picture in reality, as we'll see in the final feast, God is pictured from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, all of history of the present earth and heaven. And then we will begin the new heavens and new earth. So please join me next time. Now until that time, may the Lord bless you mightily, and I'll either see you here or in the air.